you don't have to succeed at the expense of someone else almost all of the time. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I am Megan Henry, and today I am joined by my partner, Scott Ribney, and also Manny Manulaitis, who is the VP and Corporate Counsel at uh, Coffin Financial Group. And we are here to tackle a, a more difficult conversation today. Uh, we are going to talk about you know, ethics in an unethical world and really just dig in uh, to some issues that we're seeing and kind of offer our insight of what we think um, leads people to sometimes make unethical decisions and you know, how to spot it and how to prevent it. So I'll bring them in. Good afternoon, Manny. Thank you for joining Scott and I today on The Defense Never Rests. How are you today? Wonderful. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. I, oh, I, I, I'm going to speak for Scott and myself. I'm so excited to have you on. You know, we, we had, you, Scott, and I had a long conversation the other day, just chatting about the podcast today. And it was, I, I, I feel like we could have gone on for hours. So I'm very excited that we're going to, we're going to hear to talk today, but before we get into the meat um, of our topic, I, I really want to get to know you a little bit better, have our listeners get to know you a little better. Um, I mean, you are the, you know, corporate VP of claims and litigation at Coffin Financial Group, but let's hear more about that. Like, how did you get there? Um, and tell us a little bit more about Coffin, Coffin Financial Group as well. Uh, let's start out with the group, first of all, because I, I love our group and I love talking about the team. Um, our group, basically, the way, the way I like to describe it is the owner of our company owns every piece of the insurance pie besides the agencies. He doesn't compete with the agents. He owns the MGA Burns and Wilcox, which is our flagship company. It's huge. It's out there. Um, he bought an insurance company back in 2001, USF that became a team. Um, he owns a TPA Minuteman. He owns a financing company. He basically owns every piece of the insurance pie. Um, his background, uh, Alan Kaufman's background, is he was a trial attorney. He was an attorney. He's, he's an entrepreneur. He likes being an entrepreneur, and he's always looking to acquire new businesses. Um, I came here in 2007 because it was a great opportunity, and I'd been a trial attorney previously in Connecticut before moving back to Michigan, um, and the opportunities were incredible. I joined up as an attorney for what was then USF company, the USF insurance that became attained. Um, Leadership opportunities came up. I got to be part of our uh, Kaufman Accelerated Management Program. And um, I got to be claims director after our claims director left and then was promoted to associate vice president. And now I oversee claims for Attain and Minuteman. It's been an incredible privilege and honor because we work closely with underwriting. We're joined at the hip with underwriting. Our underwriting teammates are great. And I love the outside counsel we work with. And it just part of it's nice being part of the surplus lines industry and learning what I've done. So it's been great. Well, and it's also like super interesting because you're you're in so many aspects of the insurance industry. It's almost like other than with the absence of the brokerage, you're like you're a one stop shop. You can do it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's what really makes it very exciting. There's opportunities, and even even if there's something that the insurance company can't do, if there's something that Burns and Wilcox can do, there's something that you know BW Brokerage can do. Um, we're venturing into uh, uh, marine and marine cargo, and you get to learn about new lines of business. I, I mean, sometimes you talk about insurance, and, and you see people's eyes glaze over. Um, there's a lot of special events and there's a lot of 
different entities we've insured. We've insured the Blue Man Group. Um, we've insured the Insane Clown Posse in the past. We've insured a lot of different entities and a lot of different people who can't get coverage from the standard market. We insure the 5% that the rest of the market won't insure. So there's opportunities out there and uh, it's just exciting. It's different than being with a standard carrier because in my past life, I was with Allstate Travelers. They're great companies. Um, but this is different. It's fun. It's, it's exciting. And I love learning about business. So it's great. And I, I love that too, because I, and especially the point that you make about um, it being interesting, because I think there's a big misconception that insurance is boring. And I think it's like nothing further from the truth. It, like even when you mentioned like Blue Man Group, like it, you know, there's so many, like everyone has to have insurance. So when you're involved in claims and insurance, there's so many interesting entities that you could be defending or it could be your clients or your or have a claim against and you know I think people just kind of don't realize that and how that can really kind of spice things up a little bit in this world. I'm glad to hear you say that you know I, I, I think I think sometimes um, you know what you and I say we're, I think we're in the minority but I think once people actually delve down into the weeds. In fact, a judge made a comment in an oral argument that I listened to in California the other day. And she said, you know, a lot of people think insurance is boring and coverage is boring. And these are intricate arguments, but I, I can see why people are so passionate about the words and the policies. And it was really nice to hear the judge say that and then read her written, written opinion and say, okay, she really listened to what was said, what was said, what was going on and got the arguments as a non-insurance person who became a judge. So it is exciting when that happens. It doesn't always happen, but when it does, it, it's exciting, it's, it's rewarding. I remember this from when we first talked and I have, I ha I'm compelled to bring it up because you said you lived in Connecticut and I forgot that we, we both lived in the same town and I think your kids oh. went to the same elementary school that I went oh. to, do a little school, Cheshire, Cheshire Connecticut. <laughs> Great ice cream shop there. <laughs> Sweet Claude's is the best. Sweet Claude's, Sweet Claude's is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I can't have someone from Ch who's lived in Cheshire go on a podcast and me not acknowledge it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's funny, even my kids make fun of that my elementary school because they're like, oh, do a little school. Did you do, do little, little there? <laughs> You know, I forgot the name till you just brought brought it up. And one of my daughters went there, which is which is pretty sad, actually. I forgot the name. And then you mentioned Doodle, and it came back to me. Mm -hmm. um, but just to back and Scott, interrupt me if you if I'm interrupting your thoughts, if you have anything to say. But um, you know, you're now in insurance, but you didn't start there. You were a practicing attorney for for some time. How did you make the transition over? Uh, all right. <laughs> so that's kind of a funny story. Um, I went from Ohio to Connecticut after I graduated from Toledo. I wanted to be go back to Connecticut to where my family was. Um, and I met my wife who I'd been with for 26 years and she went back to Connecticut with me. Um, I went and I started clerking for a judge. I wanted to be a prosecutor. There weren't any jobs in the New Haven prosecutor's office. And I took a job for a judge, uh, Judge LeCarrie, who was a great mentor to me. And um, it paid $77 a day. Uh, there weren't opportunities in the prosecutor's office. And, and basically my first real litigation job that I was able to get was with an insurance defense firm, a small insurance defense firm. And back then um, around 1995, they were letting newer, young, younger attorneys uh, try cases. So I was very fortunate at that time. And it's something that I think we need to get back to doing in the future. But um, we had had it was a group of about nine or 10 attorneys, three attorneys left the firm. 
and the pep talk I got from my first trial was the partner who was a very good attorney um, gave me the file and he said, you know, Manny, um, we have a shortage. He said, one day you're gonna be a good attorney and a good trial attorney. That day is not now, however, I need you to try this case tomorrow. So that was my first opportunity that I went in. Um, after that, I went in in-house with Allstate and I don't know what Allstate's like now, but back then um, they tried everything. Um, so I got a bunch of trials with Allstate, which was great. They sent me to the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. Um, and it was great because it was nerve wracking, um, but also there's like a comfort level, like you went and you did it. Um, 2001, fast forward after I'd been a practicing attorney for about seven or eight years in Connecticut, um, my wife said, um, I'd like to move back to Michigan to be near my family. And I said, okay, Kelly, if you get a job out there, I'll move there with you. And not expecting her to get a job or go down that path. And she got a job and I kept my word um, and came out here and I hung out my shingle and I was in private practice. Um, like that a lot, like that a lot. There's challenges with private practice. And this opportunity came up in 2007 and I saw a whole different element of insurance, the insurance coverage aspect that right now I couldn't be a trial attorney and I would do horribly if I tried a case right now because it's not my game anymore. It's not what I do, but I do enjoy reading the fine print of the policy and working with underwriting and finding out, okay, how do we get this product out there that's marketable and then protecting the company and really going before a judge. A lot of judges who don't have that insurance background, some of them do. Most judges really want to do the right thing and saying, okay, what do these words mean and how can we update our policies and how, we can, how can we take care of our insurance and seeing the big picture. So um, that's how I got back to Michigan. I love Michigan. It's a great state. I wouldn't want to be any place else. I consider it my home now. The only thing I miss from Connecticut is I do miss the pizza from New Haven, Connecticut. But I'm happy to be here. The Great Lakes are great and Northern Michigan is fantastic. Look, I'm in New Jersey and I desperately miss New Haven pizza. So <laughs> I can only imagine how you feel in Michigan. But there is Gold Belly now. You can always have it delivered. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're here to we're here to chat about an kind of a different topic than we've um, approached in the past. Um, and it, with the three of us have kind of talked about it at length, but um, we're here to kind of talk about ethics in an unethical world and kind of what, what we're seeing happening and, you know, offer suggestions or just discuss what's going on and see how, how we can kind of change it. Um, and I think from each of, we have each different perspectives for our various careers of what we've seen, what we've seen happening and ideas of like wh where we can go in the future. So I'm just gonna open it up to, to this and then we can move on from, from there. But, you know, we, in the, you know we're, all, we're all attorneys and we, we go to school and we learn to, you know, do our jobs in an ethical, ethical manner. Um, but then what happens when things, we see things kind of go off the rails, either with attorneys or, or with adjusters, when they're trying to do, you know, practice in their, put forth their best practices. And sometimes that just takes a dive or takes a left turn. Um, what is, Manny, what has been your experience with that on a, on a general level? It's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. It's, I think it's a challenge for everybody. I think, I think there's a certain amount of stress that people feel in life. 
because people want to perform and we've all got obligations. If I were to just focus on the attorney part, I think being a good attorney is hard work if you do it the right way. It's very, very hard work. Um, if you're going to be in claims or working as a claims attorney or in the field as a claims adjuster, doing that job is hard if you do it the right way. And when you're thrown off the, the rails, like you said, Megan, when, when someone is acting unethically, um, it would be very easy for me to say, you always keep best practices and that's the goal. But sometimes if someone is being abusive, whether it's an opposing counsel or someone who's dealing with a member of our team, you have to figure out a way. I mean, that's where the senior partner in the law firm or the leader at the insurance group has to step in and say, okay, these are our general rules. Um, you've dropped a bunch of F-bombs. You've been abusive. You've, you've acted this way. Um, we're gonna to have to end this conversation right now. And just calming down and realizing what's going on. For, for me, whether you're an attorney, an adjuster, or uh, in, any, in any field, I mean, 90% of the battle is being self-aware and saying, okay, I'm feeling angry right now. I'm feeling sad right now. We're all pretty rattled by what's going on in the world right now. We're all pretty rattled by what we're seeing and by recent events that have happened. I think the challenge that I have for myself and for all of us when we talk about like being ethical in an unethical world is, is it really an unethical world? And what I would say is for a gray area, I, I'd say it's, we're partially ethical. It's not fully ethical. We're perceiving certain things right now. And because of our stress levels being accentuated from the people who are the loudest out there, we can look internally and say, okay, how can I be respectful to someone else? When I was trying cases in New Haven, Connecticut, I was very lucky. It was a very, very friendly bar. And if you were a jerk and you were an attorney, you, you were an outcast. Um, when I showed up at trial and even what was all, with Allstate before the judge or the plaintiff attorney, I'm sorry, this is all the money that I have. This is what I got. And it's what I got, you know, and, and if we couldn't settle the case, we would try it. And when it was done, we were friends. It wasn't anything personal. But we would go out and we'd interact with each other. That doesn't always happen. Um, I've got a lot of theories about it. I think we all want instant gratification. I mean, we're all used to, we're, I, th I think the technology impacts us to think that, okay, we can get something quickly. And sometimes you have to wait. Like I know I've got to work on my patients. Um, I think ethics are a challenge. I think ethics are a challenge for um, people who want to be ethical when they're confronted with the situations you bring up. So I guess that's how I'd answer your question. See, Manny, I'm, I'm somewhat jealous. I'm going to chime in here because my experience, and you and I aren't that far off in years in terms of when we started practicing law, is the polar opposite of where you are. I mean, I kind of came in at the tail end of what can only be described as the wild west here in Philadelphia. I mean, I remember, and I can- Still kind of the wild west. Um, attorneys getting into physical fights in the courtroom in front of the judge, literally fists being thrown back and forth. Um, I remember an instance where a plaintiff's attorney um, knocked out his client in a deposition yeah. because he didn't like what the guy was saying. 
and things that to so many people would be shocking the conscience. And I know when Megan and I were talking about potential topics and you know, we're, we came up with this one here, I think it almost comes full circle. Like when you step back in so much of what we're seeing in the world now, so a lot of people shocks the conscience, but then we could probably go back at different points and say, okay, you know, what went on in, let's say the 1980s, you know, on some of the financial levels, people would draw the same comparisons to, and you can go on and on. So I think this is a great time for us to step back and say, okay, from somewhat of a, an esoteric level, but also a practical level, where are we at? you know, morally, ethically, and then, you know, how can we not only do better, but recognize some of the telltale signs? Because let's face it, you know, insurance adjusters are probably among some of the most verbally abused people out there. And we can just <laughs> go are. back probably six months to the a case out in California that made the, the press everywhere because of how a specific plaintiff's counsel was treating the insurance company representative. Mm -hmm. And it, it made headlines all over the, the news media. He faced, uh, you know, obviously some adverse ramifications because of that. But, you know, there's also issues internally with us that, you know, we can't, I think, ignore. And it's, goes so much more and deeper than just the obvious ones, you know, the abusive attorney or supervisor, yeah. but then you can get into, you know, other types of, of activities as well that, you know, conflicts of interest and where does that fit within our moral or ethical spectrum here? I think you're bringing up some really good points, Scott, and, and, and conflicts are out there and you know, there, there's so many different issues that you're you're focusing on that um, it is a challenge. And I think I think you know, interestingly for Philadelphia that you're bringing up, Philadelphia is uh, ha has a little bit of uh, a reputation for that. I know that uh, you know at the football games they've got a judge on site, and uh, uh, you know, I, I'm sure. I'm sure you've seen some things there that have been challenging for you to see. And that impacts others who see it, who see it as well, because it incites people. You know, when we think about what happened at the Cubs game with the poor fan, you know, the people are still talking about how we get caught up. I think we all need to look inward. And I think we all need to be aware of the emotions that are going on amongst ourselves. And, and all that we can do is look inward and look internally, number one, and number two, something that I think we've got to look at that's part of ethics is we've got to look at forgiveness because you've got ethically, you've got people who are ethical who have a bad day. Everybody has a bad day. And then you've got people who take it too far, that have gone too far and they don't have a friend and they can't calm down and they're in that circumstance. And the question is, is it a repetitive behavior and how do we best deal with it? And um, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge, and, 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 I, and I can sense that people are on edge, more people are on edge right now. Uh, and it is a challenge for insurance adjusters because people want what they want, and they want it now. And it, it, it's not just relegated to attorneys or adjusters or um, any profession. They, they, they're, 
they're used to get, we, we can get something very quickly with technology right now. We can get something very quickly. So we're becoming hardwired as human beings to have this reaction. And I think we need to talk about that more and think about the impact that technology has had on us. And that's a great point. And I think if I could just jump in here real quick, Megan, or not so quick, um, I, I was given that a lot of thought and I, I've kind of come up with, I'll call it five different factors that I think will lead to people compromising their ethics. And it kind of just ties into what you were saying. Manny, I'd like to run some of these by you. Sure, please. What your thoughts are. Sure, I'm Number interested. One, pressure. Yeah. And by pressure, I mean someone's desire to bend the rules to get, achieve a certain result. And that could be on the attorney's side, maybe a billable hour requirement on the adjuster side to meet a quota for closed files if there is one or to meet certain benchmarks. Number two, pleasure. You know, getting, taking shortcuts to achieve that instant gratification. So I wanna go outside, I'm gonna, you know, maybe I'll, I'll flub something over here just to get it done. Hmm. You know, when maybe I'm hmm. not, you know, doing it the way I should be. One, I think you both talked about before, a third one, power. You know, someone is abusing power, they want more power, and that desire leads them to cross lines that they wouldn't normally. Pride, I mean, let's face it, you know, we're all attorneys, we have a bit amount of pride to us. You know, we carry that into the courtrooms, but when that pride gets to be too much and we have that desire to beat someone out of something just to be in the better position. That's, again, one more thing that can get that ethics. And then the last one I came up with was just priorities. And some people, I think, lack for whatever reason, that core set of values to do what is right for some unexplained reason. And that Believe it or not, I was not a philosophy major yeah, yeah. in college, but you know, this is such an important topic yeah. as we read about all the disciplinary issues that everybody is undergoing now. It seems like it's a nonstop that I wanted to say, okay, what are some of the causes? Like, let's delve down to the root and then maybe we can try and, you know, figure out how to either correct the behavior before it gets to a certain point or recognize it before we bring that type of person into our organization. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I, I, I think what you're saying, God, I, I mean, I don't even know how to pick one. I think it's very, very thoughtful what you just said. I mean, I, I could touch on every single one that, that you, 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 you've talked about. I mean, just, just to pick one right off the bat is, I mean, the pride thing. I mean, people want to do a good job. I'll pick one right there. That power stood out. But for pride, um, you know, we were talking about competitiveness. Like we were being at orange theory and wanting to do something. When, you, when I tried a case, it's like I wanted to win. Well, what are the mechanisms that you go about to win? And how do you do it? And how do you handle yourself when you lose? Like we're taught that losing is a bad thing. How do you get better? How do I get better at something? How do I get better at jujitsu? If I'm not with a friend of mine who's better than me or better at tennis, if I don't play someone who's better than me, like how do you become better at that? And I guess that goes to the power uh, as well that you talk about. I, 
I used to have a negative view of power. I mean, there was a thought that power corrupts people. And a friend of mine once said he recalibrated me. He said, you know, Manny, power doesn't corrupt, it reveals. It's like, what are you going to do with your power? You know, using taking it out of the law context with a with back to the jujitsu analysis analysis. If I'm with somebody who's a lot better than me, um, which I like going with, I rely on him or her not to break my arm when, you know, they're submitting me or going down that path. And conversely, I take it as a great honor when someone who's new in class comes up to me and wants to roll. Now, can't do jujitsu now because of COVID, but it's, oh, yeah. I guess, I guess that goes to your point, Scott. I, I think they're all good ones. And I think, I think um, everything that you mentioned is, is correct. I think you bring up a good point though, from uh, like, you have to have uh, someone to learn from. Like, just like when you got thrown into to your first trial uh, and your boss is like, look, you're not going to win this one. Um, you know, you need someone to show you the way at, in some respect. I mean, everyone has their own individualized thoughts and feelings, but you also need some sort of mentor type figure who's going to help guide you both ethically and just in practice in general. So you don't make, you know, decisions that might be unethical decisions that you don't even know are wrong. You don't even know that is a, a wrong call because you weren't even given the guidance from someone to show you that that is not the right way to go. And so I think part of it speaks to you just, you need, people need guidance. They need someone to mentor them, to look up to, to ask questions with, and to tell them that they are wrong. Um, yeah. Mentors, I, you know, I'm sorry, mentors are so important, Megan. I, I think that's huge. I mean, why are you filing an objection to a motion to extend the discovery deadline? It's like, okay, you know, the, the judge is going to give it. I mean, you, you're going to need it in the future. And and just mentorship from other people is, is huge in all aspects of life. And finding good mentors to say something, hey, you know, I'm having this thought, Megan. I'm angry about this. This is going on. And, 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 you know, you saying back to me, you know, Mandy, let's examine that thought. Let's examine why you're upset about that and how the other other side behave there and, and go down the path. It may be right, it may be wrong, or it may be some shade of gray, and there may be a fair compromise, but you don't have to succeed at the expense of someone else almost all of the time. Almost right. all of the time, it's so rare that you have to go down that path, uh, especially in business. You just don't have to do that. So that's one of the exciting like recalibrations and one of the things that I love about my job here, but mentorship coming full circle to what you said, it's huge. Right. And even like being, I just remember um, being a younger uh, attorney and getting so angry about something. I don't know what it is at this point. It was probably very trivial, but at the time being so angry and then you're, you're pounding out this email, like this angry response email. And then like uh, some partner came into my office and he's like, well, what's wrong with you? And I would just like spout out everything I'm angry about. And they're like, okay, hold your jets, you know, and let me talk it out with them and show me that no, being this, having this reaction, understand, like, yes, you might be frustrated or angry, but this reaction to opposing counsel is going to get you nowhere. Yeah. Uh, just like yelling at an adjuster on a phone or, you know, taking this aggression out on someone isn't going to get you anywhere, but also having someone to help guide you through the process and explain, or show you, like, I know how you feel. I felt that way too. Um, but this, 
outlet is not a productive outlet. So let's, let's find a way to be productive, vent to mm-hmm. your coworker, vent to, you know, your mentor, vent to yourself in the mirror, whatever it may be, <laughs> but find it a way to release this energy. That's not going to impact things negatively. Yeah. Well, that's a constructive way to deal with it. I, th- I think what's dangerous and I think what happens like going, coming full circle to the ethics is when you don't know that you're angry. Like, so if you know, like right off the bat, like, okay, I'm sad. I'm, I'm very sad about this. And it's a real emotion or I'm, I'm angry about this. I mean, that's 90% of the, the battle right there. It really is. It doesn't mean that you can resolve it hundred percent of the times, but just recognizing, I think a lot of people, a lot of people who are feeling stressed don't realize that's, that's going on. And the people who are continuously, you know, going down the triggers of, of getting into a fight in the courtroom, Scott, or going down that path, the people who are the repeat offenders, those are the people who we have to really worry about. You know, those are the people who we have to protect. We've got to protect against people like that. But if, if you know you're angry and you're remorseful for your actions, you're truly remorseful for your actions, then you can rehabilitate and you can go down that path. But then there's also the side problem too. And I think it's part of the discussion of you know, you deal with people like that, and then the easiest door out is to give them what they want. I mean, that that yeah. is also, you know, while seemingly innocent, also falls into, if we want to be technical about it, a little bit of an unethical behavior. I mean, if I'm dealing with an attorney who I know is, has a history of just lying and cheating and making my life difficult, if I overvalue the claim just for the purpose of getting rid of it, I've not carried out my ethical obligations consistent with the way the model rules allow. And the same thing can also be said of adjusters. And I know I've, I've had this conversation with so many people where when they see someone is involved, they'll purposely go down the path of least resistance just so they don't have to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you bring we, that, that. That's a tough one because um, I'm very anti-confrontational, and it's 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 something that I don't like at all. And it's one of the reasons that I actually did jujitsu to relieve the anxiety <laughs> and to force myself into that situation um, because there is something rewarding when you're in a dark place and someone's on top of you and you can't get them off of you. It's rewarding. You're like, okay, I've got to relax. I've got to figure out how to get out of this this situation. Um, but you're correct, Scott, because sometimes in circumstances like that, I think the best way to deal with it, it's like if you hear something that you know is innately wrong in my past, if I heard something or I heard behavior that was wrong, I would avoid it. And I, and I would go down that path. And I didn't like that aspect of my personality. I still don't like confronting. I think the best way to deal with it in that circumstance or a best practice might be, okay, informing both your client and the insurance company, hey, we've got someone difficult on the other side to deal with. It's going to be a little bit harder for me. I'm going to take these measures to avoid unnecessary confrontations. But you may have to have this case drag on a little bit more. Or this is what's going to happen in this case. And I want to warn you about that. And then I guess taking care of yourself because you can take care of your client. If you're, if you're in a good place, Scott, and you're calm during that deposition when that's going on and you're taking care of yourself, you're effectively making yourself stronger and you're taking care of the client by making yourself stronger. 
and saying, okay, can I make it through this deposition with, instead of not getting angry, okay, I'm going to feel the anger and I'm just going to calmly, you know, object to the record and put what's going on and we'll go before the judge and we'll react that way. You're helping out your client in that circumstance by helping out yourself. So I think that's the only logical way that I can think of how to respond to it, a thoughtful way that I can think it doesn't always work. You're never going to bat 100% because we're human beings. I mean, I definitely don't bat 100%. I wish I could. But that's the only logical way I can think of to deal with that. Yeah, you see, my personality tends to be the the opposite. You know, if there's if there's the fire, if there's some calamity, I'm I'm usually finding myself being the one drawn towards it. So, you know, a lot of times, what I'll do when I reach out to you know, or I'm talking with a, you know, someone at a carrier, and they're starting to lament to me about a certain issue or something, you know, I try to get involved to say, okay, you know, how can you get me involved so I take the fire, okay? Yeah. Let this person go on the way. He'll still be involved, but let me be kind of the, you know, the grunt on the front line there, you know, to, to take all of the incoming fire and we'll get the case to the, the resolution it should be. You know, and the same thing, you know, I found over the course of my career in the office is it's not that the people aren't capable of handling it, but sometimes, you know, we all hit our tipping point. Yeah. And it's when you hit that tipping point that, okay, who can step in that has, you know, maybe a higher tipping point and they're not going to hit that level as quickly. And sometimes it's just a a different personality. It's not saying that person can't do their job for whatever reason, but it's just all part of our human nature. And if we can keep ourselves away from that edge, that tipping point, and, you know, doing jujitsu, you know exactly what that is, you know, yeah. that point right before the arm's going to break, but it's not quite there yet. You know, it's like, okay, you know, yeah. exactly. When do you, when should you tap out? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, um, losing and tapping out isn't, it's not a bad thing. You're learning, you're learning something, you're going down that path. And to your point about like using resources, I think that's huge because it, it segues into a whole different animal, which is leadership and playing to people's strengths. Um, you know, there's a point that you touched on that I think is fascinating, which is going into the fire and being that person. You know, I, I, I watched oral arguments before the Ninth Circuit. Um, for one of there's the lots counsel- of fire there. <laughs> oh, there was. And our counsel, she did, she did fantastic. And I watched her argument. And um, the most impressive things I've watched her argue I think uh, three times now before the Ninth Circuit on video. And the one thing that I remember from all of the things that she did during the argument was during one argument where she was getting beat up on, um, one of the judges who I I think was pretty tough um, asked her point blank said, who whose responsibility is it for not citing this case in the brief? And it was much more forceful than I'm telling it to you right now. And her response was very calm and said, well, Your Honor, that, that would be my responsibility for not putting it in the brief. It was, you know, an 80 or, or 90, you know, year old. and I just thought to myself for stepping into the fire, she calmly, now she had her way of doing it. You have your way of doing it, but coming full circle to playing resources or playing your resources, there's different people at your firm. I don't expect everybody in a firm to be a trial attorney, but I do expect there to be 
two people in case one goes down who can go down to the mat if we have to and go down that path and figure out what we need to do because cases so rarely get tried right now, but it's important to have the other resources and recognize who's feeling stressed, what's going on, how do I protect my teammates, my partners, the other attorneys at the firm. So I think, I think it's fantastic that you do that. And I wish, I wish others at law firms thought that way. Um, I think there are others who think that way, but I think we need to grow more towards that. We do. And, and here's the kind of the challenging question. Um, and if you, if you want to boomerang it back to me, absolutely. <laughs> How do you, or what things do you look for when, because you've been on both the outside and the inside, that would lead you to question whether a firm or a lawyer maybe treading too close to that line for your comfort and is starting to, you know, engage in questionable conduct, whether it's for their own financial benefit or just to go and, and burn the fields for the sake of burning the fields when it's not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, you know, um, I, I've been lucky from the standpoint that first I've got to compliment the lawyers that we have, the outside lawyers we've had, they've been very good. We've had a, you know, a good group that I've been pleased with. That's a tough question. Um, I haven't seen a case point blank that fits that realm. I can think of an attorney who I dealt with about nine years ago, who I recognized was just alienating pretty much everybody. I won't mention the state or anything that he came into contact with. And it's really not good for the insureds because you want the insureds to be there for trial if they have to be there. You want them to cooperate. You don't want them to have a loss run on their record when they try to go get insurance in the future that we have all these expenses on your file because your expenses and your indemnity show up on your loss run for your business when you go out there. And I just recognize that having someone who knows when to make an alliance or when I have to fight and knowing that you can be a diplomat, I've seen it, you can try a case and still be a diplomat and you can be cagey. I guess it's certain personality traits that I look at as an attorney, it's very difficult because we all have personalities like Scott, you gravitate, you sit a little bit more towards the fire. I like to figure out a way to make the peace and look at, you know, how can we resolve this issue that's beneficial to all parties? We each have to play to our personalities and recognize other people on our team, you know, maybe bring in Megan on a certain case when you want to do, you know, maybe bring in someone else from the firm and figure out, okay, I need, this person has a relationship with opposing counsel and the mediator. They've got opposing counsel's respect and the mediator's respect. She's going to be who gets the best result in this case. So I didn't really answer your question per se about like looking down that path. What I would say is to answer your question more directly is when an attorney is going down that path and I recognize it, it's not good for our insureds and it's not good for the company and I've got to make a change. And that's the difficult part that I've got to deal with and do in that circumstance. 
What about, let me throw some other examples out there. Sure. These are ones I've heard other people talk of in the past. Um, is kind of a flag for different people. You know, one of them are the attorneys or the firms who you can almost count on working the files all the way to the hilt and then you get the 11th hours, this has to settle. Yeah. It has to settle and it's every single time is one where, you know, I've heard carriers say, you know what, that's a little bit of a, a flag for us or the firms that just seem to be burning through younger associates. Yeah. You yeah. know, with like the same partner, they bring them in with much fanfare and then a year later they're out the door. Not saying it's necessarily unethical, but if we're just talking flags itself within our profession, you know, what are some of the things that we can see there? A third thing I've heard is when carriers are always cutting like the same percentages off of a bill, yeah. or you yeah. seem to have repetitive things over and over again. I mean, I knew, you know, of a firm out my way where they had a consistent issue. And again, I'm not naming names with legal research, not being requested or approved. It turned into a, a big deal with the client. And the one that broke the camel's back was, you know, to, to hear the number, you'd scratch your head and say, really, you fought over that? But no. that was one that one carrier said, okay, we're making a call at this point that your interests are not aligned with ours. And there was a little bit of a, an ethical quandary with all of that too, that they both had to go through. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, th I think we all need to look inward. And when I say we all need to look inward, it's both the carriers and council and looking at it as, as a team. Because the way I like to look at it, first started globally from a human perspective. Uh, you need to eat. We need to eat. You, you know, work hard at your job. You need to do well um, and, and, and take care of yourself and the people in the firm. The company needs to succeed. And most importantly, our insurers and our business partners need to succeed as well. Um, I, think, I think I'll address both issues. I'll, I, I'll hit the insurance carrier issue head on. Um, and then I'll address the attorney issue as well, because I think I've got to look inward at first and, <laughs> and, and go down that path. Um, any company that just flat outright cuts a bill, it's not appropriate. It's just flat out right cuts a percentage. I mean, it's, it's just not appropriate. It's, it's, it's simply not appropriate. I mean, you ought to bill for the work that you're done and that there's litigation guidelines that are out there. You ought to be fair. You ought to do right by your client and the insurance carrier ought to look at what's reasonable. What are other attorneys now to compare you to other attorneys and look at what you're doing? That's reasonable to look at it. To just flat outright cut a bill. We've got long, long-term relationships with our counsel who I trust, who I like a lot. Um, I, think, I think on the flip side, what I see you mentioned firms and associates getting burned out. I have noticed red flags if I see more than a partner and associate on the file, more than two attorneys on the file and the bigger firms, well, what are you doing? You know, what's going on? And, and that goes back to what Megan said about the mentoring. I think there was a time when I was practicing back where you can do well and the firms can do well. And they'll say, okay, when I was out back in my early days of practice at the firm, there's an 1800 hour expectation for an associate or something along those lines. 
which is reasonable because to bill out 35 to 40 hours a week, you really have to work 50 if you really think about it to go down that path. Like I said, being an attorney, being a good attorney is hard work if you do it the right way. And there is a way for everybody to succeed and for everybody to do well. I think that um, certain carriers and certain have alienated their, their, their counsel that they use. I look at attorneys as teammates. When I talk about the people we've had for a long time and I talk about the successes we've had for our clients. Now, we're a smaller business. We're out there. We don't succeed unless our attorneys do a good job for us and our outside business partners. That's how much faith I have to have in the attorneys that we retain that are out there. If we treat our attorneys unfairly, we're not going to get the best results. So there's fairness to both sides. There's having litigation guidelines. Um, but I think we all need to look inward. I think we all need to look inward. And I, I'd say insurance carriers need to look inward and the insurance industry needs to look inward. And I think lawyers, and I'm also a lawyer, we as lawyers need to look inward and look, look at, are we being reasonable with the associates with the billable hour requirements? Are we stressing them out? If I see if I see four or five attorneys on a file on a slip and fall case, or someone gouging and going down that path, it's obvious. That's wrong. I've got to call them out on that. I've got to go down that path. I don't see that frequently, thankfully, with the counsel that we have, because we've got counsel we trust who've done a good job for us. So, well, I think um, we're talking about you know having to look inward. I think that's assuming too that you have the mindset to do that, and I think there there is a like <laughs> I, I, I'm, we're all laughing, but I mean I think the the problem is there there are maybe companies or departments or firms out there that may not have that their self reflection at the management level that some of these things that we're talking about go unchecked, unnoticed, or a blind eye turned to because it protects everyone's bottom line. I mean, if you think about it, there could be firms that turn a blind eye to the multiple associates overbilling on a file because it may help the people at the higher up. There, there might be companies that turned a blind eye to flat out cutting the bill because then it, it helps their bottom line. So again, I think you have to have, I think, management who are being self-reflective and being and have the ability to spot these things and look in, inward to themselves saying, are, are we run properly? Are we doing this in a correct, appropriate way? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. And, and, and I was smiling initially because my, my youngest daughter told me once, you know, you know, dad, you, you believe in self-improvement. You think other people believe in self-improvement. Not everybody believes that, you know, and going down that path, but a lot of people do. Um, <clears throat> um, but your point is very well taken, Megan. And, and, and I get what you're saying. I think what I would say if I was with one of the carriers who was behaving that way, that was only looking at the bottom line, or if I was with a law firm who, um, you know, look the other way and rewarded an associate, not for how good of an attorney he or she was, but for billing out 23 or 2,400 uh, hours instead of learning how to try a case, learn how to do things the right ways. I'd say, okay, you, you might win. And, you know, I've had this discussion with, with, with our, you might win in the short term, 
but this isn't a good long-term play. It's, it's not a good long-term play. And um, I'm naive enough to, to believe that most people, you know, in spite of what my youngest daughter said, want to do the right thing. And if you talk to someone that way and go down that path, it, it'll work out. And if it doesn't work out and you don't have a meeting of the minds, you go in a different direction. And not everybody is a fit, but your point is well taken that we cannot change everybody. And we can only change ourselves and our group around us, the people who do want to become better. I think that's going to grow. And I think that's going to lead to good relationships. And I've seen it happen with some of our council that we have, you know, that I've told you about personally, about, you know, our council that's gone before the Ninth Circuit, or other council that we've trusted to try cases for us. We're very conservative on trying cases. Um, it happens. And it can happen. And, and it's and it's out there. And, and it's, we can find each other and we can work together. That goes along with that. And, and you touched on it too, is so much of this is also on the person. I mean, some of the best people I know um, as attorneys came to the realization very early in their careers that they weren't meant to be trial attorneys. Yeah. You know, and there were other paths that they went to that were very good for them personally as opposed to being in that position that they knew wasn't right for them or you know the you know insurance adjuster who you know is in that position because well it was the only thing available you know it may not be the right fit for them and that's part of the challenge with with all of this is you know for the person to recognize hey Am I in the position where it's going to be my personal highest and best use? Mm -hmm. And then the people on the other side saying, okay, are we looking out for our folks to make sure that we're giving them the ability and the opportunities to reach whatever their maximum potential is? Like if you were in a a management type role and you have someone on your team or, or someone that might be your meant or not maybe not on your team or a mentee outside your industry. And you recognize this is not for them. Uh, I like, they can see that they're unhappy or that this is just not the right path. I think the, almost the onus might be on, on you to sit down and say this, Hey, like I've noticed this is just, you're very unhappy or th this might not be your path and help guide them or suggest that a different path is available and that's okay. But I think a lot of times you get into the, you know, you get into a, say a trial firm and you're like, okay, well, I said I was going to be a trial attorney. So I'm going to be the best trial attorney there is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you, and I, so I, I think it's both self-reflection and also there is a, a part of that that falls on either the, a mentor or someone in a manage, management position who has the capability to uh, sit down and talk to that individual about either what they're seeing that's going wrong or maybe poor choices or judgment calls, or that they're frankly just seem unhappy and maybe guide them into a different type of role that, that might be better for them. Right. Hey, can, I want to ask this question. I, I think we've touched on it a little before, but I'm going to ask it very directly. <laughs> okay. Uh, before I do, I, I want to put a little bit of a, a preface on that. Okay. Sure. We talked a little bit before about like the ABA model rules for attorneys. 
Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that for those who do insurance fraud investigations, the International Association of Special Investigators has as part of their preamble that the investigators have to adhere to the highest ethical standards. So with the caveat that we have these kind of guidelines out there, why is it so hard for us to follow those or to at least strive to reach that goal? I mean, we're always going to come up short, but why do some people take that proverbial left turn at Albuquerque? We're complex creatures. <laughs> I mean, we're, that I mean I mean, that's not a vague, a vague answer. It's not to be coy, but we're complex creatures. And I think the people who do that, if you look at those ethics, like if you pick one of them, if, if you read part of the rules and one of the rules, like, you know, coming back to what you said previously, you know, Scott, I'm going to zealously represent my client. And you don't read the rest of the rules that are out there about your duty of candor to the court and how you behave. Mm -hmm. Okay, you choose which rule you read and you have amnesia about the rest of the rules that are out there. Um, that's one example. But I, I think that each person, each human being brings their own background into it. And um, we're not always logical. We think we're very logical. We're not. And it, 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 it's... You know, I guess the simple answer to your question is, I don't know why some people do that. I don't know why they do it. Um, I do know that if someone doesn't want to adhere to those rules, or at least become better and go down the path where they can try to adhere to the rules and do the right thing, then as Megan said, they may not be right for the job or the profession, and they may need a different profession that fits more with their own compass, their own ethical compass, as opposed to the law or fraud investigators. And I also think though, I mean, everyone has their own set of life experiences and the way they, they view and interpret things. And I mean, we know as lawyers, we can read this, three, three of us could read the same passage and each pull out a different meaning. So I think as you know, stark as rules may seem, I think some people could read them and use their their life experiences and their worldview and use those rules and take something entirely different or mold what they want it to be or what's happening into, okay, well, the, the, it's okay because that's how I read this. I, so I think it's a, a factor of that, you know, everyone ha has their own experiences and it also interprets things differently that can skew things to work for them and almost justify their own actions. We try to rationalize it. Right. I, we've, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but, you know, we're all in, in management type positions and you ha have teams. And what if, you know, you're on your, on your team, you identify, you know, an employee or a, an associate or someone who you, you've, I say, oh, like, I think they're taking this left turn. Um, or it might not even be an associate. Maybe it's someone at your level or above your level. And you see that they're taking this left turn. You know, how do you, how do we go about approaching that? And is it different if it's someone who's above you, equal to you versus, you know, someone that might be, you know, a, a newer employee who's not quite on the same, you know, I hate keep using the word level, but I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think it comes down to the communication and, and how you deal with it and, and looking at it. I, th I, th I think you've, 
I like seeing the entire picture. I, I try to identify, has someone had a bad day? You know, what's going on? Is this a repeated behavior? So let's assume someone has a bad day. You empathize with them, you listen to them. I was very lucky to talk about mentors. My dad and my grandmother were great mentors. They would listen to people. Um, my dad had a background in psychiatry and uh, friends of mine after college, when I'd come home from grade school, be, be there talking to my dad um, when I came home. I didn't know if they got in trouble. I didn't know what was going on. My dad never told me what they talked about. It was between them. That was it. He, he just listened and my grandmother was the same way. So if it's a one-time incident, I'm looking at it, whether it's someone who I, you know, a supervisor, an executive, because all people, whether it's entrepreneurs, whether it's business owners, everybody has a bad day. Let them get it off their chest. They're human beings. Um, if it's a repeated behavior, um, I think the first thing is we have to take a step back and say, before someone joins our team, whether it is an insurance company or a law firm, I'm very big on the hiring process. Like for our insurance company here, we hire a lot of attorneys. Um, sometimes you meet an attorney at a cocktail party and you know they're an attorney after one sentence comes out of your, their mouth. Um, here, you're making a shift from being an advocate that's out there if you've been a litigator to coming in house with us and working for an insurance company. What is your business mindset? Are you gonna be able to take care of the clients of the organization, the customers? What are your customer service or client service skills like? So I would need to do that. And it's a failure of me if I brought someone onto the team or one of our directors that hasn't lived up to that role. And I'm gonna do everything with my power to let her or him succeed and put them in a situation where they can succeed. Now to the difficult position, when it happens every once in a while, it's a repetitive behavior. What's really going on? I mean, talking to the person, finding the role for them that they can serve and help us succeed and profit and serve our clients. If that's an opportunity or viable opportunity, I go down that path. If it's not, and it's not meant for them, that's a difficult situation. You've got to look at it when someone has taken that wrong path and, and either address the behavior head on and say, you can start off by saying, do you enjoy being angry like this all the time? You know, very, very, very serious question. You know, do you realize the impact that you're having on others? You, you understand that we're, we're in business together. I mean, asking questions and going down that path. And if it's very bad behavior that is going on, I have to protect the other people on the team. And I've got an ethical obligation to do the right thing if I can't rehabilitate. So um, that's all that I can do, Megan. And, well, and I think the, the core theme is communication. Yeah. You know, and, and also just not, also not jumping jumping to conclusions too, yeah, you know, recognizing that everyone has a bad day. Um, but if there is a pattern, then it's, it's communication. And I think that's all part of being part of a team too. And, you know, taking care of your team um, to the extent that you can. <laughs> and then Agreed. at some point it might be like, okay, well, maybe I can't take care of you anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for coming out. I think this was such an interesting conversation and like not an easy one and you know I like those and more thought provoking than than most so 
Um, thanks so much for, for joining us and, you know, making me think this much, you know, this late in the afternoon on a Thursday. <laughs> Thank you both. I enjoyed being with you. Thank you.